0: So I used to work for a member of Congress in Washington, DC. And whenever the Republicans and Democrats would descend into arguing over who was at fault for what and when, his mother used to say that everyone should just blame George Washington for everything and get on with it. This is kind of how I feel about the Arab-Israeli conflict. It's impossible to know who started what and when, so I find it much more convenient to blame the British. I'm not excusing Israel's policy choices today or the actions of the Arabs and the Palestinians But if you keep peeling back the layers of today's conflict, you'll get the decisions made by the British Empire in the years and decades following World War One. A lot of times when a question comes up on a birthright trip, why is X, Y and Z happening? My answer starts with, well, you see, this one time, the British. So this one time, the British, November of 1917. Lord Arthur Balfour, the Foreign Secretary of Great Britain, wrote a short note to Lord Lionel de Rothschild, a prominent Jewish leader in England. Balfour's note, or letter, what became known as his declaration, is one of those historical documents that has been infused with great meaning by all sides. Yet it was so vaguely written that anyone can project what they want to see. For the Zionists and today's state of Israel, the Balfour Declaration represents the first full-throated international support for establishing a Jewish homeland, an enormous practical and symbolic milestone on the road to Jewish self-determination. For the Arabs, the Balfour Declaration was the first of an endless stream of international negligence towards their rights and opportunities in their native land. For Britain, it was the beginning of a 30-year mess of things in the Middle East that would ultimately and with the collapse of the empire there, and the emergence of multiple Arab states, and one Jewish one. The Balfour Declaration, then, is one of the key foundational documents of Israel, but it's also undergoing, 100 years later, a reassessment in just what exactly it promised the Jewish people, what it didn't, and whether it ultimately produced more good than harm. It's essential to understanding modern Israel, so you ought to know it. This is the follow-up to last week's episodes on the beginnings of the Balfour Declaration. I'm your host, Jason Harris. Welcome back to Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. We left off last time at the beginning of 1917. That year, the year of the Balfour Declaration, was a turning point in World War I. The United States was brought into the war by Germany's use of unrestricted U-boat submarine warfare. You may remember that from history class in high school. Britain launched a campaign against the Ottoman Empire in Palestine. They finally captured Jerusalem in December 1917. The Balfour Declaration was signed in November. And just a few weeks later, the Russian Revolution led to the abdication of the Tsar and Russia pulling out of the war. Within a year, it was all over. Palestine was in British hands, the Ottomans were defeated, and on November 11th, 1918, Germany signed the armistice, ending the war. But at the beginning of 1917, the British Empire was still looking for allies in the fight against the Ottomans. In 1915, they had made a secret deal with the Arabs. If the Arabs revolted against the Ottomans, the British would support the creation of an Arab Empire across much of the Middle East, including Palestine. But then a year later, in 1916, the British made another secret deal, this time with the French, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, carving up the Middle East into French and British spheres of influence for after the war ended. In doing so, they betrayed that original agreement with the Arabs, a fact which, when it was revealed at the end of 1917, led to lasting enmity between the Arabs and the West that has persisted to this day. Throughout the year, Zionist leaders in Britain continued pressing their case before Britain's political leaders, hoping to seize the collapse of the ottoman empire as an opportunity to gain britain's support for a jewish national homeland the british were of this mind too thinking that support for zionism would translate into support from america germany and russian jewry for the allied cause in other words american jews would press their government to enter the war German jewry support for germany would weaken and russia's jews would influence their government to stay fighting in the war The Zionist movement was led in this effort by Chaim Weizmann. He's probably my favorite Zionist, not because of ideology, but because he has the same birthday as I do. I mean, I'm very shallow. What can I say? But having arrived in England in the early years of the 1900s to teach chemistry, Weizmann became something of a socialite amongst the British elite, forming friendships with the biggest names in British politics, including David Lloyd George, Winston Churchill, and Arthur Balfour. He also, at the same time, became the British-Jewish community's leading Zionist supporter. He was in a prime position then to mediate between the two, and he enmeshed himself into the political machinations associated with Britain's prosecution of the war and the efforts to determine the territorial fate of the Middle East afterwards. If you are someone who enjoys the intricate details of diplomatic negotiations and the -the behind-the-scenes elements of Zionist leadership in wartime Britain, then uh, no judgment. There's lots of reading material for you. If everybody has their thing, it's not my place to judge. But let's just boil this down to say that Chaim Weitzman was very persuasive. One story goes that when a member of the House of Lords asked him why the Jews insist on Palestine when there are so many other undeveloped countries that would be more convenient to settle, Weitzman responded, that is like my asking you why you drove 20 miles to visit your mother last Sunday when there's so many old ladies already living on your street. So he weathered local Jewish opposition to the Zionist movement to convince the British that it was in their military, political, and Christian philosophical interests to support a Jewish homeland in Palestine. British leaders spent months in negotiations with each other, the Americans, the French, even the Pope, over what would be done with the Ottoman territories in the Middle East. All this culminated in a short letter that Lord Balfour, the Foreign Secretary, wrote to Baron Lionel Rothschild, member of parliament from the exceptionally wealthy Rothschild family and a close friend of Weizmann's. The letter was written on November 2nd, 1917, with a request to forward its sentiments onto the wider Zionist movement. It contained just 67 words. 67 words that, depending on how you want to look at it, led to the creation of Israel and save the Jewish people, or wreck the Middle East, or split open Arab and Jewish conflict, or maybe all of those things, or none of those things. If I'm being a little dramatic, it's okay. I'm spitting a story here. So here's what Lord Balfour wrote. And rather than reading it with the dulcet tunes of my California non-accent, let's go British. To Lord James Rothschild, the great nephew of Lionel, reading aloud the Balfour Declaration for a BBC interview in 2017. I'm going to put on my spectacles to make sure I read it accurately. His Majesty's Government view with favor the establishment of Palestine as a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours, Arthur Balfour. Jolly good. So, wow. I mean, this is so great. The Zionist movement had achieved one of its major goals, one of Herzl's big visions, an absolutely essential element on the road to creating a Jewish national homeland. This was the first time that a major European power had positively acknowledged Jewish national aspirations. The Balfour Declaration is often today portrayed as a major accomplishment and a significant source of Israel's legitimacy as a state, even 100 years after it was written. It was monumental. But. Okay, so first of all, there's the obstacle that Palestine wasn't a part of the British Empire yet and therefore Britain wasn't really able to promise anyone any territory. It was still part of the Ottoman Empire, and while it seemed pretty clear that the Ottomans would collapse, it was less clear what was going to happen to the Middle East when that happened. Remember those secret deals with the Arabs and the French. So Britain really wasn't in a position to be able to guarantee the creation of a Jewish home. And then there's that word, home. The Balfour Declaration doesn't say that the Jews will get a state or any other kind of formal political entity. Merely that Britain will support the area becoming a home for the Jewish people. It didn't say that Jews would have sovereignty or control of territory, which is what the Jews ultimately wanted. And by territory, the Balfour Declaration was vague on that too. It didn't define the territory. People often overlook the fact that Palestine doesn't refer to a defined piece of territory, like California, but rather a general area comprising what is today Israel, the West Bank, Jordan, parts of Syria, and Lebanon. The Balfour Declaration's omission sets up one of the great outstanding questions of Israeli history, right up to today. What constitutes the Jewish national home? What should Israel's borders be? How to decide, in the context of the vague territory of Palestine, What should be the Jewish state, and what should be the future Palestinian state? In part, because the Balfour Declaration didn't set a precedent for the geography of the Jewish homeland, we've been plagued ever since by conflict over Israel's borders. And then there's the second half of the Declaration, the clauses that refer to an understanding that nothing will be done to prejudice the civil and religious rights of the existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. The existing non-Jewish communities of Palestine, at that point, made up about 90% of the total population. The declaration also doesn't say anything about the non-Jews' political rights in the future Jewish homeland, although it does, in the next phrase, talk about protecting the rights and political status of Jews in in any other country. So, what's going on? Well, it's a muddle. The reference to Jewish political rights in other countries was an attempt to say, hey, just because there's going to be a Jewish homeland now doesn't mean that Jews living in another country are now going to lose their citizenship or their status or will have to be forced to move to this new homeland. In other words, you, anti-Semites of the world, cannot use Britain's policy as an excuse to kick out the Jews in your country. And in a similar vein, the reference to the civil and religious rights of the non-Jews in Palestine was an effort to say, hey, Jews of Palestine, just because we support you having a homeland there doesn't mean that you in turn get to kick out the non-Jews or otherwise infringe on their rights. But there's still this contradiction here, an unfairness that many people pointed out, where the rights of Jews were given a higher priority than the rights of non-Jews. There was a distinct lack of equality and support for non-Jewish, which is to say Arab, self-determination. World War I was fought in part based on the principles laid out by President Woodrow Wilson, that key one being the idea of self-determination for peoples living in their native lands. Those who had the majority, generally speaking, ought to be able to govern their own territory. But Lord Balfour said that he considered the situation to be unique in the post-war environment, that Palestine was a special case, and therefore not subject to that sort of blanket support for Jewish self-determination for all peoples. But that argument never really held up, And as recently as 2017, the British government has acknowledged that the declaration should have referred to the political rights and self-determination of non-Jews. The Balfour Declaration, then, those 67 words, they were messy, they were vague, in some ways contradictory, and did not create a Jewish state in Palestine. Still, the British were clear that the intent and spirit of the Balfour Declaration was, in fact, to set up the eventual creation of a Jewish state. Lord Robert Cecil, who received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1937 for his work promoting peace through the League of Nations, said that the British government's wish is that Arabian countries shall be for the Arabs, Armenia for the Armenians, and Judea for the Jews. Balfour, Winston Churchill, and David Lloyd George all expressed similar sentiments. So this raises an awkward question about our understanding of Zionism. If it's the case that we celebrate Balfour as being the reason why the Jewish state came into being, it would suggest that Israel is a colonial project of an imperial empire. And that is, in fact, a common accusation against the legitimacy of Zionism, that it is a white imperialist project, and Balfour is often used as the key piece of evidence. And it was certainly one of the reasons why the British pursued this policy. They thought the Jews would be useful clients in the Middle East. But that's why it's important to see the Balfour Declaration as one of many parts of the foundation of Israel, but not celebrating it as the central piece. For one, we're gonna see in coming episodes that the British will dramatically alter and eventually even break the promises made in the Declaration, to the extreme detriment of both Jews and Arabs. So while a broken highway may still point in the general direction of the next town, it won't get you there. And second of all, Reducing Israel and Zionism to this single British policy invalidates everything we've discussed in this podcast about how much effort the Jewish community had to expend and will still have to sacrifice to achieve their dream of self-determination and Jewish renewal. As Benjamin Gladstone wrote around the 100th anniversary last year, the Zionist movement is about speaking truth to power, about standing up to Europe and to the world that has betrayed us so many times and claiming our rights. Zionism is about liberation, justice, and self-determination. When we allow Israel to be labeled a product of the widely hated British Empire, we surrender both our agency and our purpose. It's also important for us to realize that while the Zionists were happy to use British imperialism for their own ends, so too, at the time, were the Arabs. Remember, the Arabs had already made a secret deal with the British two years before Balfour to create an Arab empire centered around Syria that would include Palestine. And while the Balfour Declaration seemed to break that promise, the Arab leadership wasn't totally opposed to it as long as they could get their empire. Beginning in 1918, a few months before the Balfour Declaration, my birthday buddy Chaim Weitzman met with Amir Faisal bin Hussein, who had emerged during World War I as one of the most prominent Arab leaders and who had aligned himself with the Allies. Emir Faisal's goal was to create this Arab empire and to become the king of it. Just a couple of weeks before the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 began, that was the post-war meeting from which the infamous Treaty of Versailles emerged, the two struck a deal in order to present a united front together at that conference. This is how close the Arabs and Jews came to peaceful coexistence from the start. Emir Faisal agreed to accept the Balfour Declaration and the creation of a Jewish national homeland in Palestine. The Jews would be allowed unlimited immigration and the right to settle the land, while Arab rights and property would also be protected. Disputes between Jews and Arabs would be settled by the British. But all this would be conditional, said Faisal, on him getting his independent Arab state. And here was the problem. The French didn't want the Arabs to have a state in and around Syria. Remember the Sykes-Picot agreement between the British and the French. The French were supposed to get that territory. What Amir Faisal wanted then was for the Zionists to support the Arabs against the French in favor of the creation of an Arab empire. He wanted the Jews to go to bat for him on the world stage. And Chaim Weitzman wanted to, but he just couldn't go it alone against the British when they had already made this deal with the French he couldn't break that relationship. At the same time, in Syria, where the newly formed government under Faisal was starting to get organized, the new Syrian National Congress voted against supporting the Zionist aims in Palestine, especially on the question of allowing Jewish immigration. So with Faisal having failed to achieve international support for his Arab empire, his own people opposed to the ideas expressed by the Balfour Declaration, and unable to effectively rally the Zionists to his cause, he ended any cooperation with the Zionist movement and tore up the agreement that he made with Chaim Weizmann. He was the first in a long line of Arab leaders around the Middle East who would learn the hard way about trying to make peace with the Jews. And Chaim Weizmann was the first of his people to appreciate just how close he would be allowed to get to make peace with the Arabs, but not able to go quite all the way. A year later, Faisal was proclaimed king of the Arab kingdom of greater Syria. That led to a war with the French. The French won. So in 1921, something of a consolation prize, the British simply made Faisal the first king of Iraq. Because when you're a colonial empire, you can just declare kings. As king, he would later express his support for the spirit of the Balfour Declaration, as long as Palestine didn't turn into an actual Jewish state. Okay, well, wow, there's still so much that can be said about the Balfour Declaration, but maybe that's enough for today. It's going to continue playing a major role as the British attempt to bring order to their corner of the Middle East in the 1920s. There's a lot going on in this decade, and it all seems to be happening at the same time, making this podcast harder. I don't know what to talk about in what order. The League of Nations creates the British Mandate, putting Britain firmly in charge of Palestine, the arab israeli conflict formally kicks off with violent outbursts in 1920 and 1921. the zionist movement wages an internal civil war over the future direction of the project with its competing ideological tree branches if you want to understand why today's israeli government is so right-wing look to the ascendancy of right-wing zionism in the 1920s arab nationalism is also becoming a distinct movement as we just saw with king faisal meanwhile the yeshuv the jewish community in palestine continues to grow with Jewish immigration, expanding economic opportunities for Jews and Arabs alike, and organizing institutions that mirror those of a national government. It was the Roaring Twenties in Palestine, indeed. All of it is interesting, all of it is connected, all of it is important to understanding Israel today, so we'll keep going. L'Hitraot, see you later.